Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hello and welcome. Today we'll be talking with one of Australia's most trusted travel media commentators about the future of travel and we'll also be getting some insider tips for how and where to travel in Australia in the next couple of years. Our guest is Quentin Long of Australian Traveller Media, which is Australia's largest independent travel media company, publishing Australian Traveller and International Traveller. Welcome, Quentin. Morning, guys. Quentin, as the co-founder of Traveller, what was your background and what was your goal when you first started up? Yeah, great question. Would you believe it? I was actually in IT publishing for a small company you may have heard of called Fairfax, now called <laughs> Nine. Fine to some people. And I had been living in Singapore for 18 months and then I moved to London for two and a half years and I came back to Australia. And I had an English girlfriend at the time. She's not my wife, but that's another story. <laughs> and when she arrived to, to in Australia to live with me, I thought, you know what? I should say some of this country. And so I booked, it was May, and so I looked at a map of Australia and went, where's warm? She's English. She's like Garfield. She'll want to hit the sun and fall asleep. And so the broom was there. I saw a deal for broom, and I went, you know what? Let's go to broom. And so we flew to broom, and as you fly into broom, you fly over a thing called Roebuck Bay. And if you've never seen it, it is quite startling because you have this incredible, almost electric vibrant blue water that looks something out of a photo of the Maldives and then you have that incredible pin down red soil of Australia and I was looking down and I was like oh my god this is amazing you know I backpacked around the world when I was 18 celebrated my 19th birthday in a pub opposite Madison Square Garden drinking Long Island iced teas illegally because I was not 21 and you know I lived in Singapore lived in London and I hadn't seen my own country and then as the the wheels of that virgin blue jet hit the tarmac in Broome. I thought Australian Traveller, a brand that celebrates what's fantastic about this country, and it's not just a country, it's a continent, and and gets Australians to engage with it in a way that is is revealing and celebrates it. And it's not it's not Pauline Hanson-esque, jingoistic, this is the best country in the world, but I haven't been to another one. It's a celebration. I love Paris, I love London, I love New York, I love the Yukon, I love Tuscany, I love the Med, I love Croatia, I love Greece, I love a lot of this world. But in that in that context, check out this place. And and that's that's where it was born. Fabulous. You must get asked this all the time, but I can't help myself. How many countries have you actually visited? Do you know? I have no idea. All I will say is that it's less than it's less than you'd expect because I'm the idiot that sends other people to go and do it and I pay them to do it and then they get to come back and write about it and then, you know, I, I don't get to do as much myself personally as I, I could or should perhaps, but I have no idea how, how many countries, to be brutally honest. And, and I, I don't want to count almost because I think I'd be embarrassed <laughs> I guess we also tend to, like a, a regular traveller, not a professional traveller, will go back to places that they love also, won't they? Yeah, yeah. But I feel like it's funny, you know, I've had this long conversation with people and myself, which is 
there is a sense of foreboding going back to a place because if you have remarkable and incredible important memories you don't want them to be sullied by the new ones right mm. and so I've, I've got a great case study in that in that and, and this is going to sound like i'm bragging it's not really but I, I was lucky enough to go to qualia on hamilton island for six weeks after it opened with my then girlfriend who's not the english one it's a different one <laughs> then girlfriend and and as we left she started crying and i was like uh, you okay you know that was pretty good, wasn't it? And she was crying because she said, and she said through tears, you know, I've, I've never been to somewhere so special. It'd be, it's just amazing. <laughs> I'll never get to experience this again. And so we went back for our honeymoon. And so we had five amazing nights for our honeymoon. And last year we celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. And so we went back again and we actually landed on exactly the same day 10 years later. Uh, and I was, I was a little, oh, thank you, but I was a little bit apprehensive mm. about it. Because I didn't want the the honeymoon to be to be that memory to be any different, and so I will say now it wasn't. It was fantastic, but it was funny watching my wife walk around as if she owned the joint. <laughs> oh, look what they've done there, and look what they've done there. They've changed this, and, and it was it was really you know. And I think that's a testimony to to what Quiet is, and that it gives you that sense of true indulgence, but freedom and and engagement. Apart from the fact there are way too many countries in the world to see, there is also something nice about going back to somewhere. I go to Italy every year. It's my my spirit place. But I always have to go to another country as well. That's the rule. So I'll go to Italy and Croatia or Italy and Hungary or something so that I I make sure that I see as much as I can. But you're so disciplined. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny you should say that because Italy for me is very similar Mm. and New York is different but similar. I can go to Italy anytime. And mm. Rome to me is just one of the great. I feel so good in in Rome, mm. but the reason for that is because I was as a, as a child, mum and dad moved the whole family there for two years when I was oh, wow. age two, and so I have a very different relationship with Rome. Whereas New York is one of those cities that I describe. You have to go every ten years. Was that because you know because every ten years, at least every ten years, I should say because. You go and you're different and mm. New York is different and you get to check in and it's sort of like as a it energizes you, you get to get that whole amazing New York energy, but it also gives you the perspective about where you've got to. It's almost like a, a diary moment about how you're different, your interests are different, where you, how you felt about the Met the first time you went there versus the, the, the you know, the last time you went there is very different. You know, and that is a, is a really interesting sort of self, somewhat self-indulgent but interesting reflection on yourself. Like I remember going to the Met as an 18-year-old when I was there and then when I went to the Met as a 45-year-old, really different. My reaction to the place was different and that, it was reflective to me about how I had changed. I, I lived in London for 10 years and when I go back to visit now, it's it's such a different experience. You know, mm. I still hold on to that kind of sense of ownership of the city and the things that I know, but at the same time mm. I'm looking at it through a tourist eyes and, you know, seeing what, what it looks like from the other side, I guess. Mm. But, Quentin, you may not have travelled to hundreds of countries around the world, but I bet you've had some incredible experiences. Make us envious and tell us about your ultimate international travel experience. 
I can't give you just one. And, and ultimately, <laughs> so you know, it's so variable. It's, yes, of um, And it, you know, we, we have different ultimates um, depending on what we're doing. But I'll give you a couple. Alaska on a small ship cruise in these really, you know, not very luxurious ships, but you're in and out of zodiacs or dibs as they call them. And on the last day, you get to this point right up the top of the inside passage in at Alaska where the 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 Tide change is so big through a narrow gap that it really lifts all this sea life off the bottom of the floor. And the sea lions know this. And so there's this free feeding frenzy every change of tide. And, and the guys, obviously, in the cruise ship know this, and so they time it, and you go out in these zodiacs to be metres away from these huge sea lions just having a massive feeding frenzy. It is like living in a, in a, a Nat Geo documentary or, or a David Attenborough documentary. It is just that astonishing because the sea life's going nuts. The sea lions are <laughs> having a feed and throwing fish everywhere. You get fish on you. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> and you have that spectacular scenery of Alaska. So that's definitely one. The second one I'll give you is a life changer, and that is uh, a, a little place that no one's heard of called Fogo Island Inn, which is... Fogo Island is the largest island off Newfoundland and a woman who, Zita Cobb, who was an islander and obviously Newfoundland was absolutely devastated in 1976, I think, when the fisheries were closed, the cod fisheries were closed. And so you have this very, was, you know, very hard living, became even harder and that there's a lot of poverty. And so Zeta was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to Montreal University, became a CFO of a company to an IPA, so made lots of money and decided to go about trying to solve the problem of of communities in regional centres. And she, she was giving scholarships to kids and one of the mothers, when she was giving the scholarships to kids on the island, walked up to her and said, that's great, Zeta, but all you're doing is paying my kids to leave. And so she said about developing industry. And so she built a thing called the Fogo Island Inn. If you look it up and look at the images, you'll know what I mean. It is incredibly special. But that for me was someone who's putting their money where their mouth is. She invested $40 million. Everything is built on the island. She created industry. It is one of the most surreal experiences and it's complete immersion and it's one of the great luxury, you know, privileges of my life to have been able to go and see it and feel it and it's really hard to describe but it is it is what i think is the future of travel mm, well. i'll give you a couple more <laughs> a bit more indulgent if you like sure. um, in 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 a slice of the arabian peninsula where they, where they if everyone's ever been to oman which is one of my favorite countries oman's actually divided into two because the peninsula that heads out towards Iran was somehow ended up in the Oman country, even though it's cut off from the rest of Oman. And I suspect that was because no one else trusted anyone on the Arabian Peninsula to, to man such a strategic point and not use it for, for battle. But anyway, out there, there's a resort called Six Senses Ziggy Bay, and it is astonishing astonishing because it feels like you're living on the moon but you have this incredible sea and I'll, t I'll give you the story you arrive you fly to dubai then you drive two hours through the, the uae south easterly and then you get to this stage where you go through the border you go into oman and then you get onto a basically a goat track of a road that winds up and it's it's hairpin after hairpin after hairpin after hairpin and you get to the very top and then when you get to the top 
the, the driver turns and says, oh, would you like to tandem jump into reception? So it's on this cliff face <laughs> and you can jump out and run over and then you go. And it, it is an astonishing because it's this huge, probably 2K long crescent-shaped beach all to yourself and that really unusual colour of, of, of Oman that's sort of like an apricot, burnt apricot, colour and then this incredible green luminescent sea and it's really barren and it's really still and and the resort is unbelievably beautiful and everyone has their own plunge pool so uh, on the indulgence side I'll give you that one for the luxury mm. out there. and did you tandem jump to reception uh, my wife said no um, <laughs> you can't do that and then after three days I said I'm sorry I'm going to do that and she said if you end up as a blob of strawberry jam at the bottom of that cliff I'm not rescuing you and I was like that's okay honey I think these guys have got it so I went and did it and it, yeah it was bloody amazing it was it, it really sticks with me as uh, on the luxury s- sort of end of the, the scale that was up there I've been to the Six Senses in Cambodia. It was pretty special. Oh, wow. I thought I knew the name. Yeah. Now, Quentin, we know that travel riding is not all chauffeured limos and five-star hotels. It can be hard work and uh, sometimes not everything goes to plan. Can you tell us maybe your worst travel experience? Yeah. It's funny, you know, I, I think worst travel experiences often become your cherished or funniest in, in, in over time. Oh. So I've got a couple is actually on my honeymoon and, and it's more chaotic than it is actually disastrous. And it's for our honeymoon, obviously we went to Qualia for five nights, which was amazing. And then we went to the Adelaide Hills for two nights and stayed in this fairy tale sort of hotel that's really, really unusual in the Adelaide Hills. And then we went to the Barossa for a week and then it was my turn. And from the Barossa, we were driving all the way up to Uluru to spend two nights at Longitude. And so we were on the road and we're going to do it, you know, on the road. And as we left the Barossa, Michelle, my wife, was really uncomfortable because I hadn't booked anywhere. I was just going to make it up as we went. (laughs) And so we're driving up the Stewart Highway. And as you you know, you you leave behind the wheat fields of South Australia, you get to Port Augusta, and then it starts to get really, really barren. And she was really sort of, I think, thinking Wolf Creek. And I was just like, look at this amazing outback. Isn't it fantastic? And so we get to a roadhouse and I've decided, I don't know why, but I was obsessed by the big mine outside in, in the middle of you know the outback in South Australia where they, it's the largest deposit of uranium in the world. And so I just wanted to to go and see it. And so we're driving, 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 and you have to turn right off the highway. And we got to the roadhouse where we were filling up for fuel and we pulled in and I'm filling it up. And this trippy, if you've ever been in the outback, a trippy is like a land cruiser, but it has bench seats in the back. And four blokes roll out of this land cruiser, all of them drinking, cans are falling out of the car. <laughs> including the driver and I'm filling up with fuel. Michelle says to me, I'm going to the bathrooms and they're way over the other side of the, the thing. As she walks, the boys will wolf whistle at her and one of them follows her over. And I'm just sitting there going, what do I do? When do I panic? 
And so she goes to the bathroom, I'm filling up and I'm torn. She eventually comes back and we go and pay, but she's panicked by this time. I've actually managed to book a room at the at the caravan park at Roxby Downs. And so we get to the caravan park and I go in and she's in the car and she gets out of the car and the, and I stupidly came out and I said, oh, they, apparently they had the police here last night. And she's looking down and going, that's blood on the floor of the tar- you know, of the road. Where are you keeping, you know, like we get to the cabin and there's, I'm trying to ignore, there's this big hole in the door of the cabin. <laughs> and she goes, what's that? And I went, I don't know. And she goes, that's a fist hole. Someone's <laughs> punched this door. And I'm like going, great honeymoon, Long. You're doing such a good job. And and so we, we get in there and it's, it's not the greatest and it's musty and she goes, where are we going for dinner? So we go to the club at Roxby Downs for dinner and we walk in and I said, what would you like to drink? She goes, I'll have a bottle of white wine. I don't know what you're having. So I have a beer and she starts necking this. I was red wine actually. And then she turns around to me half cut and goes, that's Merv Hughes. And I was like, no, no, that's funny. It's someone who looks like Merv Hughes, but it's not Merv Hughes. She goes, no, no, you've met him. You met him. You know that's Merv Hughes. I go, yeah, it's okay. It's okay, honey. Don't worry about it. So she gets up and she goes over and he goes, g'day, Merv Hughes. And he goes, hi, what, what are you doing? She goes, I'm on my honeymoon. <laughs> and then he goes, you've met my husband. And I'd actually met him two years earlier at Port Douglas doing something up there. And so I went, oh, g'day, Merv. And he goes, on your honeymoon? What are you, like, giving me deaths? He's like, what the hell are you doing in Roxby Downs on your honeymoon? And he said, look, I just wanted to see the mine. <laughs> anyway, so it turns out he was there to do a men's health thing. We went back to the, we passed the rest of the night without incident, woke up with very dusty heads the next morning and actually got conjunctivitis from the pillows. And, oh, anyway. <laughs> and then... And then walked into the, the mine tour that I'd been wanting to do. And as we walked in, the woman who's running it goes, are there any honeymooners here? And we're like, yeah, that would be us. And so murdered, murdered her up. So that's one very unusual, not to script sort of travel experience. The other disaster that happened is when I was backpacking around Europe and America when I was 18. And, and I was with, there was four of us, and we'd split up and go different ways. And, and two of us, wanted to go spring skiing in Zermatt in Switzerland. And so away we went to Zermatt, two others went a different direction. And so I, me and a mate were, were spring skiing at the top of the Matterhorn and uh, and the Austrian aerials team was, was practising and they had a few jumps up and we were like young and dumb and went, yeah, we'll go over those jumps. So I went over the first jump. And, uh, you know, kind of landed it, just didn't kill myself. My mate went over it and just cartwheeled down the hill. And I skied down to him and I went, mate, you all right? And he was snoring. And I was like, oh, mate, don't. And he was out cold. So I did the whole thing with the skis where you put them up and then, you know, out of nowhere comes the, the Swiss ski patrol. And, uh, and he's just looking at him and he's on his radio to me and, and it's, and, and it's getting cloudier, it's sort of almost sleeting, and he's on his thing and he's talking to me and he's going, okay, oh, we'll have to get a helicopter and we don't know whether the helicopter can land or not and if, if the helicopter doesn't land, we'll have to take him in the in the banana boat and all that sort of stuff. And then you know, after this about 15 minutes of this, there's this... And this helicopter comes out of nowhere and lands 
you know, 20 metres away, two blokes jump out of the helicopter, run up, grab my mate, run him down the hill, chuck him in the back of the helicopter, and then they're gone. The ski, the ski patrol guy looks at me and goes, see you later, and just goes. And I'm the last guy on the hill. I've got all his gear. I'm trying to get it home down. And, and I've got, I'm almost falling off the T-bar thinking I'm going to be found, you know, the next morning, frozen to him, trying to hold on to all his gear so we don't lose our deposits, going on a T-bar, then going on another T-bar in this sleet. And then I get to the top, eventually get into the gondola, get down the gondola all the way back down to the the village at the bottom of the hill, get rid of all my gear. And I just, and, and I say to this woman, I say, oh, my, my mate's just been taken off the mountain in a helicopter. Do, do you know where he is? And she has to make these calls. And, you know, and eventually she tells me he's down the valley at this hospital down there. And so the next day I get up and I, I get on the train to go and find my mate. I don't know where I'm going and I'm trying to find out. I have to stuff. But I get on the train and, and back then I, I, I used to, and I don't like to admit this, but I was a smoker and I, I'm on the train back down the valley and after a couple of stops, there's a couple of, um, you know, conscripts, young blokes who were doing their military service. And I walk up to them and say, oh, do you, do you guys have a cigarette I can borrow? And they went, here, smoke this. And I Oh. I'm passing around a joint oh, in the no. train. So I turned up to the hospital. Let's just say I turned up to the hospital. My mate was pretty out of it. I was pretty out of it, and <laughs> and I spent the next two days just hanging out in this hospital. So that was that was another disastrous story. I don't know whether you want to share that one or not. But yeah, it was very interesting times. Oh, that's great. They're great stories. We could talk all day. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, the world has changed significantly lately, and most of us are stuck inside our own borders right now. Quentin, how would you describe the impact COVID has had on international travel? In a word, devastating. You know, there was a stat that came out in, I think it was about June, that IATA said that the same amount of air traffic as there was in 1958. So Mm. that's uh, more than 60 years going backwards. Have there been any think tanks or industry consultation with the government to create some kind of strategy to support tourism now and into the future that you know of? Yeah, so there's been a few conversations been going on. Different bodies have been doing different things. There, There is the Tourism Task Force, COVID Tourism Task Force, that has a roadmap that they've tried to lobby the government about how to open up and, and do things like that, and that's been quite quite interesting. After which is the Australian Federation of Travel Agents has been lobbying very hard for travel agents, didn't successfully get the the money they wanted from the government in the budget, which was a bit of a shame. They only wanted asked for $125 million because you've got to understand travel agents can't just sell anything, particularly because domestic doesn't make any money. They have Australians aren't allowed to travel, so they actually have no ability to to make money. They can't just open their doors, particularly when, you know, if you book something and it's in six months' time, you don't get paid for 12. There's a lot of startup costs in a, in a travel agency. And, and they were processing, they, they processed $10 billion worth of refunds. There's $3 billion left to go in about a month ago. And, you know, think about that, getting $3 billion back to Australian consumers. The $500 for seniors was going to cost $2.5 billion. And he was they were asking for $125 million to help get $3 billion back to, to, mm. to consumers. It was really disappointing that the government didn't go for it. They would say, I believe, that all their small business initiatives are really helping. But I think 
it will be very interesting to see where this ends up. It seems a very short-sighted approach from the government. Yeah, but it's easy to say that, and, and often there's mitigating circumstances for governments that we're not aware of, but in this one, I, I, I tend to agree. They have, have given Tourism Australia a significant amount of funding boost to be able to stimulate the economy, and I think that's what they want to see happen. But you've also got to remember that travel agents are net exporters, then, uh, sorry, they're, they're taking money out of Australia, and so there is a bit of a dis, dis, disinterest, perhaps a bit, to really drive more money overseas, but... That's, I think they've got to look at the employment because, you know, again, look look at the employment. Travel agents, predominantly female, predominantly, you know, in regional country, in regional centres. So there's a lot of things going for the employment argument. There's about 35,000 travel agents. So there's, there's not an insignificant number of them. Mm. How do you think the COVID crisis will affect the way we as individuals approach travel? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. There's the pragmatic side and then there's the more uh, broader scope that I was getting into before, which is the pragmatic one is it's going to be until we get effective vaccination globally, by which I mean enough people in the world vaccinated appropriately with with an efficacy that seems to be okay, the, the hassles will be higher. So it'll be slower. It'll <clears throat> require more time. It'll require more planning. Simple things like you can't just rock up to a destination and expect to go into a restaurant. You know, it, it, within the domestic scene, we're hearing lots and lots of stories, and I've experienced it personally, where if you do not book at least 24 hours where you want to have dinner, you're not going to be able to get in. They're working under constrained occupancy or, or density and therefore they're trying to service everyone there's a lot more people going to some some regions so it's really difficult and the other thing i think that, that comes out of this is that we will ha- i hope we have a greater appreciation and gratitude for travel uh, as Johnny mitchell said you know you don't appreciate it till it's gone and perhaps that's what's going to be happening for travel The the third sort of element for me is I'm hoping that there is a new habit formed uh, and a new appreciation for Australia. Obviously, I've got two brands. I've got a domestic brand and an international brand, but I really do hope that because we can't go overseas, we do have a new habit in that we do tend to look at Australia through new, fresh and appreciative eyes. And Quinton, as a travel publisher, how have you adapted thus far and, and what's going to happen in the future with this new order? Yeah, it's a great question. So from, from a business point of view, it's been very helpful to have a domestic travel brand. You know, if, you wanted, if you wanted to be in one part of the market right now, domestic travel is the place to be. So we were very lucky in that we had a strategic partnership with Tourism Australia and we published, I think, on the 100 Ways to Holiday here this year in conjunction with them, it, you know, and it sold out. I mean, yeah, a magazine sold out. So we had to reprint it. It was just awarded the special edition of the year the Umbrella Awards. So that that was sort of we've become more campaign based and we've become more more focused on how to campaign for Australians and reflect what they do. So our latest campaign is a thing called Reclaim Summer, where we know that Australians had their summer taken away from them, that they had to hold the year taken away from them, and we want to help Australians find their smile. And so, you know, summer is a part of our identity and we had it removed. And so we're encouraging Australians to reclaim their summer. It be, be a simple thing like having drinks, you know, sunset drinks in your favourite place or learning to surf or going back to your fishing hole. So trying to lift the mood. So that's a bit more of an expansive campaign agenda than just here's where to go. Mm. The other thing that I think is interesting out of this is that we've become a lot more conscious and we've been, you know, we did it before the COVID crisis, but we've accelerated this. So we have commenced 
offsetting all our carbon historically for the last 15 years of publishing and, and it's really in the DNA. And we, we see conscious travel evolving into a new thing called regenerative travel, where in the past people have thought, you know, leave no foot, foot, you know, leave nothing but footprints. Actually, regenerative is going to mean leave a better environment. So leave more trees, leave more <clears throat> sustainable communities, leave better communities once you leave. And so that's, I think, where we're, we, we as, a, as a company are embracing that and starting to, to include that in our DNA of everything we do. Well, it's been a bust for our international travel and also for international visitors to Australia. Presumably there will be some long-term benefits for Australian tourism as Aussies who might otherwise be heading overseas are looking to holiday at home. I, I really hope that we have formed that new habit of appreciating this country and giving it a bit more priority. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing worse than an Australian who has not been overseas, right? Mm. So we do have to travel overseas. Mm. But I do hope there's a greater, greater appreciation for what we have here. I do think that you, you will find there is a very different mindset around travel and that people will be a lot more appreciative and therefore I think they'll invest more in it and that when they do go, they'll spend more because they appreciate that this is not guaranteed into the future. So when I do get it, I'm going to I'm going to use it for all I can, get every, everything out of it I can possibly do, plus the idea of the conscious travel. So I'm going to have the I'm going to have the most amazing experiences. I'm also going to do the most good I possibly can. So I think you'll see that happen. There has been a great benefit to in terms of the the Australian tourism industry there is a bit of a two-speed industry right now and those that are within three hours of a major metropolitan city excluding victoria have done very very well thank you very much there's a, i don't know whether you guys know about walgan valley just outside mm-hmm. sydney which is the um, one and only walgan valley an amazing amazing resort you know all that sort of uber indulgent incredibly sophisticated experience they were booked out every weekend from the time that Sydney opened up. Mm. Amazing boom for them. Mm. So the people that were suffering are the ones that rely on international tourism or domestic aviation. So I'm thinking about places like Northern Territory, Tropical North Queensland. They really are going to suffer and have suffered, particularly because they lost their peak season they're now entering in their low season and it's going to get worse. You know, Tropical North Queensland is a good example where they traditionally would have recovered through the international tourists over the Christmas period. They're not going to get that. They lost the Chinese tourists from February. They lost everybody else through COVID. They've had an absolutely devastating time and, and now they're going into low season without international tourists. It's really hard. The other one that I think is going to be very interesting over the summer is the cities. They have suffered badly because there's no business travel and there's no international travel. So places like Sydney are going to be really, really unusual this summer. They're going to be really empty. And, and I think that's going to be uh, odd. So if you're looking for deals and, and some and some offers out there, they're the, they're the three places. I look. There's incredible offers from the Northern Territory government right now for the summer up there, which would be really interesting. It's a, it's a very time, different time to go. It is full of life because it's wet. It's not wet the whole time. It is a bit hot, but, you know, it is a very different experience in contrast to the high season of August. I'm actually going to Darwin tomorrow, in fact. Oh, one of my <laughs> favourite towns in oh, Australia. Oh, is it? 
The Northern Territory Museum and Art Gallery is fantastic, really good. It has a great collection of Albert Navajiras. I know that's pretty old school, but but also a couple of restaurants. Uh, Little Miss Korea, it's a really cool little restaurant. You'll be surprised at. Get down to the waterfront. It's always good to go for a swim mm. down there. It's hard to swim. But I love the, the, the World War II history up in Darwin. And, and you can get um, day tours out to Kakadu mm. from Darwin if you can. And Litchfield's great as mm. well. Mm. Anyway, I can go on for him. Quentin, when you were talking about the different places people are travelling to and, and Sam and I, certainly changed our focus and you know we went a couple of months ago we jumped in the car and explored some of outback queensland which was an amazing experience there were just so many people which is fantastic for outback queensland which of course has been decimated by drought yeah it was incredible and for me it was uh, definitely a long overdue chance to see more of my own country quentin what do you think australians are looking for right now when they are planning this travel at home Mm, there's there's a mix of things going on. For some people, they're accelerating their bucket list, which is a great thing because I think the big misnomer for Australians is they go, you know, yeah, one day when I'm older, I'll do that in, a, in Australia. I'll do Australia when I'm older. And the problem with that thinking is that some of the best parts of Australia, you, you need to be kind of mobile, you know, and so they actually leave it too late and miss out on the best bits. So I think there's some people that are accelerating their bucket lists of the things they've always died to do. You know, I don't, I'm not going to Europe. I've got all that money back. Well, hopefully you've got that money back or I haven't spent that money, but I was going to spend it. And so they can actually sort of upgrade what their Australian experience is. And so the bucket list things like the roof, like the rainforest, like the Uluru, but also I think in, in weekends away to destinations that they normally would have ignored are really the, the salve that they're giving themselves for missing out on European holidays and, and North American holidays. I also think that they're looking for a sense of normality. We know that road trips are the big thing that through all our research, road trips are big, beach and island holidays, and then out, rural outback and, and sort of regional. And I think there's a, a bit of that going on as well. I think we're pretty much aware as Australians of those iconic Australian experiences. You talked about the reef and the rock, for example, But there are some Australians who have already done those things and who are looking to get a a deeper experience. Can you give us, say, five places or experiences that are a little bit off-piste or or that people may not have thought of within Australia? No. No, I can't give you five. I can give you 20. I'll give you... I, I hate doing five. You know why I hate doing five? Because there's eight states and territories. I always uh, feel like I'm missing. Right. Okay, right? give us, so give let, a, give let us eight give then. Give us eight then. <laughs> okay, all right. All right, just because you asked. Uh, oh, so is South Australia. My gem that I just cannot believe. I mean, the whole of South Australia is seriously underrated by the rest of Australia. Mm. Sometimes I think South Australians like it that way because it just means they turn up to dinner parties and just tell you how stupid you are because you don't know. <laughs> but... The one, like, McLaren Vale is a great example. Like, that is an astonishing region and, and a fantastic, fantastic place. But the one that I think really clinches it for me in South Australia is the Flinders Ranges. If you've never been to the Flinders Ranges, it is the outback, but just start with looking up the photo of Wilpina Pound, and, and that's the beginning. Like, this is an incredible geological marvel uh, and really the landscape is so ancient and it feels ancient and it is amazing and when the when the sun sets on the elders ranges and the abc ranges around Wilpina Pound, it's just astonishing 
further north in the Flinders Ranges, you go to a place called Arkarula. Then one of the hardest four-wheel drives up to Silla's Point. Look up that image. That's unbelievable. You feel like you're going to fly into the air. And, you know, it's it, it, and you can't do it in your own car. They have to drive you. But you get out and they pick up a rock and show you the uranium in the actual rock. It's green. It's literally green. Wow. And, I, and it's just astonishing. So I love the Flinders Ranges as an underrated gem. In, in terms of life-changing, for me personally, the most life-changing travel I've ever done in Australia is Arnhem Land. And, and, and I say that you really do not understand Australia. You don't have a clue. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say I'm clear. You will be given such an in, incredible insight into Indigenous culture and appreciation for what... 55,000 continuous years of history really means. I mean, you know, I love saying to people, they've just found a tribe in Egypt that are living the same way that the pharaohs did. Do you want to go see that? And everyone goes, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not in Egypt. It's in Australia. And it's actually 20 times older than when the pharaohs. Do you want to go see that? And I, I think that's a powerful way to say it. And so up in Arnhem Land, if I could ever get anyone, Gama Festival is a great experience, but, you know, Boy is the centre, but there's a place called Bawaka, which means heaven on earth. I've got so many stories. The church panels, I, I just don't have time to, to – we would have to do a whole different podcast on Indigenous <laughs> Australia. Yeah. That's, that's, that's one. The, the next one I'm going to give you, I've done South Australia NT. I might just mix it up and go down to Tassie. Now – for, for all us mainlanders, as the Tasmanians like to call us, who think that you can do Tasmania in a week or two, mm. think again. It packs a lot in. And this classic journey is, you know, Hobart to Launceston by the East Coast. The, the, this, the prettiest, and I put it out there, and I defy anyone to tell me a prettier town, is Strawn on the West Coast. I find that whole region of Strawn, Stanley, the nut at Stanley, it's hard hard to get to because it's one road in there and then Strawn's – but, my God, it is incredible. I agree with so you. Beautiful. I stayed in Strawn. I, I thought it was yeah. an, an amazing, slightly mystical kind of place. Yeah, it is. It is. And you can see the the – the, 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 you know, because of Macquarie Island that has all the thing, you can see that sort of the misty darkness of it, but it's also seductive and and you, you can see the spiritualism. You know, the, the Aboriginal people have, in, in, up north, I'm going to mix up my regions here, have this thing called about the Min Min Men, who are those trickery men who make you hear things in the dark or hear things in the in the bush and try to distract you and disorient you. Man, if you want to feel that, you, you get that in the forest around the, the, the west coast of Tasmania. Uh, moving on, I'm going to give you Victoria next. Victoria's a really interesting one because I do think that it gets a lot. Victorians are spoiled. Mm-hmm. Like they are so spoiled. They have so much within easy grasp. Mm. And they have, you know, like Phillip Island, Gippsland, but I, and then, you know, Dalesford, uh, Ballarat. But I think the thing that Victorians underappreciate to me is beach rest and, and the high country. Mm, I love that's it. beautiful. One of my favourite trips ever was a boys' weekend, and we're getting older, so boys' weekends for us is not like what you might think it is. <laughs> we got bikes and we started in Beechworth and we rode all the way down to Millawa and had lunch, amazing lunch at, at Brown Brothers at Millawa. And then 
A car picked us up and drove us all the way back up the hill. <laughs> it was fantastic. That's the way to go. By the way, yeah, picked up the wine that we bought on the way. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have to carry it on our bikes. It was fabulous. So Beachworth, New South Wales is a tough one. I, I'm going to give you a little mini region that I think is underappreciated for what it is. And that's sort of Newcastle, Port Stephens. Mm. Yeah, if Port Stephens was anywhere else in the world, it would be on the billboards, right? And Newcastle as a city is often overlooked, but it, it is packing a much bigger punch. It's got this incredible little you know, CBD with some art and great hotels and places to eat. Then you go north to Stockton Dunes and can, all the beaches. You go south and there's a beautiful little wilderness area on the south, uh, on the southern part that has incredible mountain biking. So they're my two. Going west before I go back to Queensland, the whole of West Australia is pretty underappreciated by most people on the East Coast, I'd probably say. I don't think most of us, but I'll give you Karajini in the, in the Pilbara as one of those really beautiful mystical water holes in the outback that just no one knows is there. It's just beautiful. Like if you look up the photos, you'll go, you're kidding me, that, that really exists. Uh, and then finally, my friends in Queensland, you guys mentioned it earlier, I love the Queensland Outback and I think it gets a far less prominence than it deserves. And that's probably because it's competing with the gems of, you know, the tropical north, the wet Sundays, all that sort of stuff, sunny coast, Gold Coast. But you guys have just been there. And I, I tell you, for me, I find it, it's like, it's like the birthplace of modern European Australia. And that is because you have Longreach, you have Winton, home of Waltz and Matilda, home of Qantas. You have these, you know, the miners' strike that gave birth to the Labor Party, and it gives you that sense of God. This is a big country, and it's a foreboding country that challenges you, that brings out the best in you, hopefully most of the time. Um, but it gives you that feeling as well. And I just think, you know, if you want to feel the modern birthplace of Australia, and I say that with absolute respect to our Indigenous brothers and sisters who have a, a history that is far forgotten and, and longer than we can ever imagine, but the modern movement that is what Australia, yeah, modern, modern European part of modern Australia is, is born in that Queensland outback to me. Mm, mm. You've got all that to the prehistoric oh, yeah. stuff as History, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the dinosaurs mm. around Winton. Yeah, mm. my kids are dying to go see that. Oh, fantastic. It's, book it's book well in advance. Currently, it's hard to get into. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was speaking to someone recently. I mean, I was talking about that two-speed um, mm. Australian travel. The outback of Queensland had an absolute cracking. I was speaking to the mm. guy in Winton who has the hotel that's... Uh, the North Gregory. That's where yeah, we stayed. It's my favourite yeah. hotel ever in the oh, outback. Wow. I love oh, it. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and he was saying that he was full in October, which is just mm. unheard of. So mm. that's good to see. They deserve yeah. it. We went to Char- Charleville as well, or Chavi as ah. we started calling it. And it um, <laughs> we stayed at the Corona's Hotel there. I don't know if you know that one, but no. um, it's, it's, you know, the big lacy veranda, you know, yeah. it takes up, you know, two or three city blocks. But things that we discovered on our trip, like I, I didn't know about the military, that there was a military base there in the Second World War. And oh, you, can, wow. you can do this tour to see the ruins mm. of, the military base because they basically the Americans destroyed it as they left. But there's all these fantastic stories like the the they built a dance hall at the base so that you know to get all the young ladies from the town to come. 
the, the Australian men in the in the town were really upset about this because they weren't allowed onto the airbase, only the women were, and they would send oh, wow. courtesy buses. So Harry Coronas, who owned the Coronas Hotel, opened his own his own dance hall, which is still it's now the bottle shop of <laughs> of the hotel. It's still there. But his his daughter ended up one of his daughters ended up his his hardest working one, he says, ended up um, marrying a, an American much to his wow. disgust and going off and living in America for the rest of her oh, life. Oh wow. So she was a, she was a, what they called a war bride in the, the yeah. US. Wow. And there's Amazing. this incredible place that you can go to on this tour which was absolutely packed that it's just like a patch of scrub and the Americans had these barbs there that mm. they would fill the on the base they'd fill with DDT and once a week the American airmen would bathe in these hollows in the ground. <laughs> Called the DT, DDT Ooh. to stop them getting lice and stuff. And, you know, quite a lot of them actually died from the bath. Oh, dear. Yes. It's so, yeah. crazy. There's, there's so much history. It's, it was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It was. And the wild. It wasn't Charlie like the, that had its own stock exchange for a while and all that sort of stuff. Oh, really? That? Yeah, oh. That's, a, that's one of my memories. Hey, can I give you one piece of trivia just to, to go yes. your trivia and, and give you one? In Ballarat, there is a, a hotel that in 1860-something or 70-something, I'm going to get my dates right, it held a ball to raise funds for the Confederate Army in the US. Wow. <laughs> a Confederate naval ship came out to Australia, docked in Melbourne, went up to Ballarat because that's where all the money was with the goldfields, mm-hmm. and held a ball to raise money. Australia... You'd never think that Australia had any involvement in the American Civil War, but there you go. There's that piece of truth. That's fascinating. (laughs) I have another question. I'm just curious about, do you think that people choose eco, specifically choose eco-tourism opportunities and options when they're planning their holidays or is it sort of more like that's just a bonus that when they go and do things that, that oh they happen to be you know sustainable and and whatnot do you, th- do you think that's that's driving people's choices yeah i think um it's a great question and and the, the answer like anything is depends depends on who it is mm. but i think what i'll do is I'll, you know in, in the grand scheme of things what is the impact on decision making of conscious efforts by travel operators and i can tell you now that it's becoming increasingly important i actually starting to think that the the the, the premium you know 50 the premium to the middle bar middle market it's expected mm. if you do not have it they'll be surprised and disappointed if you do not have a conscious sustainable regenerative whatever you want to call it practice within your travel business then you will start to be seen as not very up-to-date and modern so i think it is influencing decision making i think it's it's influencing decision making at a young market and also in the premium market and I think the mass market is starting to follow. So, you know, little things like just offsetting your flights. I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't do it until last year. Yeah. I don't just, I, I, you know, I think that the, the problem with it is that you just want to make sure you're not getting into greenwashing yeah. and people be, be, start to ignore it because they think it's all a fraud. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges. I love what Intrepid said uh, a couple of months ago, and I've been using it with due respect to them, which is when you travel in 2021, it's not going to be about where you travel, but it's about how you travel. 
And I think that's actually going to be a really effective message to get that conversation going about it. Do you know what you're buying? And our efforts are never to shame people, never to do anything, but make sure they're making informed decisions. They know what the impact of what they're doing is. And I think that's where we have to start. So interesting. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much, Quentin. It's been wonderful to hear your perspective on the future of travel and, of course, to get your wonderful tips for seeing more of Australia. Yeah, it has been. Thank you so much for talking with us, Quentin. It's given us a lot of uh, food for thought. Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks, Nat. It's been lovely to be with you guys and always here to have another chat. Love to hear from anybody out there who's got any comments or questions or wants to disagree with me. I love those emails. That's always good. You know, we're thank here to chat. Thank you. And listeners, do get out there and take the opportunity to see more of Australia and support our tourism industry. And we'll be putting links to some of the places that Quentin mentioned on our website, www.extravirginfoodandtravel.com. And we'll also put a link to the Traveller website. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews and more at our website, extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. And if you like what we do, you can support us by buying us a virtual coffee at our website. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please give us a like.